Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, and we'll pick back up where we left off there in verse 18. And as we take a look at this, today and uh, this Sunday and next Sunday, we'll be covering um, the basic laws or the laws plus. So it's not replacing the ten laws, but enhancing to give clarity to those that Moses is training up and discipling up to actually do the judging or uh, being able to to uh, guide the people who will be coming to him. Because if you remember, uh, in the very beginning, Moses was doing all the judging for all the 2.5 plus million people. And his father-in-law comes into town and gives him uh, a great idea, which was from the Lord. And that is, you will not make it through all this. You need to uh, seriously consider uh, raising up your elders and judges to help take care of the smaller groups of those tens, the fifties, the hundreds, the thousands. And then only the very serious of matters should come to you, Moses, as the leader to judge. So here we see today, starting here um, in, ver in chapter 20 at the end, plus 21, 22, 23, and part of chapter 24, this section which especially is talking about these laws that were being more clearly defined so that the judges know how to con be consistent in the matters of, of judging and ruling uh, in regards to matters of the people, especially with the protection of human life and property. These laws are based upon the character of God, which is really very important to understand that, that these are the character of God. They do, the laws that are made do not go against the character of God. So even if you feel like, oh, that's not fair, and that doesn't sound like that of God, and, and those blah, 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 and all these other things you do, the bottom line is it is based on the character of God and the unchanging moral principles expressed in the Ten Commandments that we see here in the beginning of chapter 20. So it doesn't conflict, it just brings clarity on some of the uniqueness of dealing with the population and life in general. Remember, the law is powerless when it comes to change changing human nature. It does not change human nature. It can only protect life and property by regulating human behavior. So again, the nature of a man can only be changed by God. The behavior can be regulated or guided like bumpers in a, uh, a uh, uh, playing uh, bowling. You have these bumpers in the things that not go in the gutters. You have when you're driving a car and you're going down the road and there's garters on the side. So if you lose track and you go uh, swerve off the road and go in the direct, you won't go over the cliff. So God provides these boundaries to keep you on the road in the direction that you should be in regards to day-to-day -day living. Now, one of the most dangerous and most incredibly disastrous periods for the Jewish history was in the time of Judges, in the book of Judges we see, uh, but the time of Judges where man and woman would think that every man did which that which was right in his own eyes. And there was no rules, there was lawlessness, and there was things going on there that should not be. And so when people think they can do whatever they want to do, live however they want to do, define their own morality, define their own ways, and it goes against the principles and understanding, not only the, the character of God or the moral principles that set out, even beyond the Ten Commandments, but just loving God and loving others, if it goes 
goes out there and says, people are wrong and they need to come back on track because they are about to go over the cliff. And this, this God's word keeps those garters to keep people in, uh, in back in, in line. But by enforcing these good laws, it didn't guarantee some perfect society. But it does promote order and prevent um, chaos or anarchy that can happen in society. It's like driving a car. We know to stay on the right-hand side. They know to stay on the left-hand side. And you don't cross that little white line or that yellow line. And in the wintertime, you can't even see it in the first place. But you just know. Stay to the right when you're driving. Stay to the left uh, for those others. And don't go on the, on the sides too far because you go over there, then you have... Uh, Again, you could hit somebody. But you have some places you even have little bumps in there to, to indicate, to let you know you're getting too close to the, the middle or the outside. To let you know, come back, come back. You're swaying out. Um, you go to another country, you go to other places, man, there's chaos. If you've ever been overseas, you know that there's no rule order. How you come up to a four-way stop sign or anything, it's, it's, just, it's a frenzy. And everyone's out for themselves because uh, they're not looking out for uh, other people. Now here in Exodus chapter 20, verse 18, we pick up here. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings and the lightnings and flashings and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood far off. Now you can imagine that awesome sight. Can you imagine the, the sounds and, uh, uh, that were coming from the top of Mount Sinai and the visuals and the flashings of lights? It's like fireballs, flashings and meanings and, and torches are just lighting up that mountain because God... God has rested on top of Mount Sinai. And then the voice from heaven is now speaking down to the people. And they could hear them speaking to Moses. And they could hear it all. And we know in Deuteronomy that the, the, the mountain was smoking because of the fact that the mountain uh, was burning with fire. Because God had, had touched that thing and it was lighting up. But you would think with this incredible experience, this incredible godly experience, this phenomenon is happening right in front of you, you would think that would just go, ooh, and ah, and God is all powerful, and I can't wait to have this relationship with God and be part of God. But instead, the people actually did not get drawn in, or they didn't want to draw closer to God in this, this incredible phenomenon that's taking place. It made them stand afar off, we see here at the end of verse 18. In verse 19, then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. So they were so fearful of what God was going to do that this place was lit up and on fire on the mountain and the thundering and all the, the commotion and the trumpet sounds and the, the overwhelming of all their senses and they were trying to back away from here, they immediately said, okay, Moses, we recognize you as the leader. We, you can speak to us. We will listen to you. Whatever you say, you tell the talking. But let not God speak to us because we know we would die if we heard things directly from God himself. So from a biblical perspective, up at close encounter with God uh, could just as often be troubling as it is might be comforting and you kind of see this for the people it was very trouble troubling for them they were trembling and stood far off but as we will see Moses it brought comfort it brought it, it, he wanted to engage and get even closer as we will see but this is a typical reaction for those who come into the presence of God isn't it 
Remember Isaiah who uh, felt undone before God in Isaiah 6, 1 through 5? I mean, he felt undone. I couldn't even be, be, dare come in the presence of God. Remember John in Revelation 1, 17? He fell down as a dead man before the Lord because he was just overwhelmed of the presence of God right then and there. But the people promised to hear and obey whatever God told Moses, and they were going to do that. But if you have to understand, we know the story as we continue here. They will fail this promise uh, uh, both as soon after this all takes place. And it won't be a long term where they, they will completely go against and not listen to Moses and actually do the things in their own eyes and uh, worship God however they want to. But in drawing back from this direct dealing with God, it, Israel wanted Moses to be their mediator. Fearing the fact that they're going to die, I want someone else between me and God, somehow that will keep me safe, and the mediator will go in and step in and be uh, speak for us and will hear what God has for us. But because man's desire for a mediator, someone to act good, a go-between uh, uh, them and God is, is, is good if it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, that's the man Christ, Christ Jesus. So, But even today, people will go, let me go to the fill-in-the-blank, the pastor, the, the priest, the, and, and they're my mediator, and, and can, you, can you talk to God for me? No, you need to talk to God. We're able to come, and you need to come to God if you're, as a non-believer, to repent and ask God to forgive you and start that relationship. But if you're a believer, you can boldly come into the throne and just worship God and fall down his feet and just worship him and ask him anything and come to him boldly because there's a relationship. You've been adopted into the family. As we take a look at Exodus 20-20, we're going to see a subject around the purpose of this this fear that these people were having of the presence of God. And we see that Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. So it's really important we take a look at this verse because when you take a look at the people of Israel wanted to separate themselves from the the, that, that manifestation of the presence of God there in time of Mount Sinai, but God meant it for good. He, he came down. So not only so they could hear his voice, but the sense his presence is doing it. But he, as Moses says to him, do not fear. Don't be afraid of God here, for God has come to test you. And what does it mean by testing? So we see a couple of things. One is the testing kind of revealed to the people what kind of God that they should be serving or that worshiping. And, and through this, this God's presence, he reveals his nature. He, the fact that he's above the nature of what they see. He's above, he's, he's personal. He's, he's, uh, he's good. He's holy. I mean, that's, God was testing, do you believe who God is? And, and through the time while they're in the wilderness, he's trying to bring them full circle back around to, so, just to remind them of who God is. He's testing them also on the setting expectations that, that you just can't approach God however you want to, that God is a moral God who expects moral behavior from his people. It, it, God has expectations for us. And we just don't have our own expectations and do our own thing. That God has expectations. And these are moral. These are good uh, expectations that we are to live as his children. And also, 
in fact, that we, we need to recognize that with this tremendous presence, God was really revealing and testing them uh, of their own weakness, of the fact that they, they need God. That, that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, and, and in, that we need God's grace. We need his help. We need to be rescued from our flesh and from the, the, the devil and from the, the, these worldly things, that we need God, and he's all-powerful God, and that is someone we can trust in and, and rely upon for our lives, and it's only based on God's grace that we're able to boldly come and to, uh, into his presence. But there's this fear, and there's two types of fear, right? There's this one that it, 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 do not fear, and it speaks to the tormenting fear or the, the, that, can, that can come upon us when you know you're guilty, you know there's shame, there's guilt, and you've done something wrong, there's danger. There's this fear that can come on. Uh-oh, I think the boogeyman is over here, or someone's about to break in our house. There's a fear that you should have. Someone's trying to come and get in and get caught you. Or there's a guilt. Uh-oh, I'm going to get caught, and I know this is, and I've got a fear that I'm going to go to jail, I'm going to go to this, or I'm going to go to hell. I, I know I'm a sinner. I'm going to go to hell. There's a fear. But then there's another fear that we see here in this scripture, and that is this healthy fear of, of who God is. And it's an attitude of honoring and reverence and awe and this awe presence of God that is just this, that leads to this respect and obedience because of who he is. And it's just you just want to, to, to just bow down to this God. And that though it is better to obey God out of fear than to disobey him but God's ultimate motivation is yes you might be fearful you're going to go to hell if you don't uh, surrender your life to God and ask God to forgive your sins uh, but that's not God, where God wants to have you stay God wants you to move to who he is and know who he is because you'll move from fear of penalty of fear of of uh, of consequences and move into God's love or God's presence of who he is and the obedience of to him out of love for him. We see that clearly in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. It says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. So that's where we want to get to a point where you don't you want and desire to be obedient and to love God because you know how much he loves you. Uh, loves you and uh and he's he gave his only begotten son jesus christ that's how much he loves you and he wants you to come and want to be near him and draw close to him because of that love you have for him now these the people these israel israelites are going to say one thing but we're going to say see in approximately about 40 days uh they're going to be down there dancing around some golden calf uh with just idolatry and immorality and and just in sexual in nature and their in their lust uh we'll see that in exodus 32 now when we see in verse 21 so the people stood afar off but moses drew near the thick darkness where god was so israel dreaded this powerful presence of hearing and seeing and smelling and experiencing god's presence coming there on mount sinai but moses absolutely long for God's presence. Why? Because Moses was, would just, just we will see later in, in chapter 33, uh, would just be just 
I want to be just directly in just in just be involved in the desire to be closer and to hear from God uh, because Moses had a relationship with God. The common man in Israel did not have that relationship that Moses had with God. Through the circumstances of life and through the direct revelation of God to Moses, Moses was aware of both God's holy power and he also understood God's glorious grace upon his own life. And so you can always tell those who have a, uh, that close relationship with God, you can't wait to be more in his presence and spend more time with him and in and, and, and awe and in wonder and obedience to what he has for you versus those who don't and know of him and maybe just know of him and don't know him personally. And now you're a fear of, uh-oh, I don't know if I can go and I'm not sure what it would be like if I go into church uh, the roof will fall down on me, but I don't want to do that. Can someone else speak for me? It's a, it all can reflects where you are in your relationship with God if you boldly want to come into us and be in his presence and hear from him versus standing off and staying afar like the people. But Moses drew near that thick darkness with all the stuff that was going on. And it's not like he, he deserved it. It's not like Moses was a perfect man. He was not flawless whatsoever, little flawless Saint Moses. No, 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 no. He was a murderer. <laughs> he had all kinds of problems. He even, if you remember over the time of these the last 19 chapters, here's a man who was telling God what to do in many times. So in uncertainty and doubts and fears and all these things, they were flooding in. But no, he understood the ground of grace that no one deserved God's love and presence and help and security and rescuing and any all those things. But he did understand it because he knew, Moses knew, what it meant to connect with God on that ground of grace. And he knew he didn't deserve it. But what a beautiful relationship Moses had and is a good example for us. Now we see here in verse 22, we start here in verse 22 through 26, we are going to see the very first of the law plus. And this law is going to be talking and concentrating on worship and altars. And that's the very first thing. It's, it's, God starts off very clear. And it's about how we worship and the purity of our worship. And he gives them some guidelines of how you are going to come and worship him. And you just can't freely come worship however you want to. Just remember that. We don't just freely get to worship God however we want to. We have to honor God and his reverence and be obedient to what he says. And he gives clarity to his people here. And he says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. So he starts right off front, up front here. He says, I am everything. You do not add to me. You don't add, you don't delete, but mostly you do not sit there in your own abilities, in your own flesh, and your own ways, and create something of material something of, that represents this gods of silver or gods of gold and put alongside me like I need to be enhanced or something. I, for me to really get my experience in God, I've got to do these following things to really get to help emphasize and get the experience of God that it has to happen. And you do, we do that very subtly in many times. The mood lighting, <laughs> the fog, 
you know, sparkles coming down and, and angel hair or feathers, I should say, coming down. All kinds of things to try to create big statues and gold statues and all kinds of things that represents and uh, statues of God and the things of God. And they're everywhere because when you come in, you want to experience uh, something enhancing you believe you can enhance the experience of worshiping God and as you as well, I will know as we study the word you can't do that you may have tried it <laughs> you may have had your home and you have your little shrine and your little things and all set up and on your mantles because that's where you want to go and you want to be able to help experience and in the experience you're having with God as you come to him but be very careful as we see the the warnings that God has put on here there's no form or image that they can make that will ever please God to try to supplement or come alongside God. Verse 24, And an altar of, the, of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, in every place where I record my name, I will come to you, and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. So we see here in this creating this, 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 the altar to be able to come and to, God says, you're going to, you're going to come and, and, and you're going to do this. It's the very first law mentioned of a sacrifice. If you notice in the scriptures, the very first note of a sacrifice and atonement that, that his people will need to have. Because it's an expectation that God knew his people, that his people would take this law and still go out there and not be obedient to the law. He knew they were not going to be perfect to the law. And that's why he set up there's going to be a need, a need to be a covering for the sin of his people. And there's going to be an atonement to make it right with God, to be one with God. You're going to have to be a sacrifice. So he puts this law in order so that, that they can see that this is what they're going to need to do when they fall short of meeting and the, the law perfectly, which God obviously knew that they were going to sin and that they were going to need to sacrifice, and they were going to ultimately need to come to the altar of God and to to uh, to just to to surrender and to have that uh, covering of the sacrifice of that animal for those sins. And God didn't need any ornate, beautiful, extravagant altar to do the, for people to come and sit at the altar to worship. And to sacrifice. He says it just needs to be altar of, of earth. It just That's sufficient. All I need is when it comes to the altar there is something of earth. Stone that has not been touched or hewn out by human hands. Because if someone comes in and starts chiseling and making it really look really, 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 really pretty. Then the focus will be on the person who made the altar and the building and not on God himself. Now, ultimately, as we know, in the New Testament, we see that all God needed for his altar was two wooden beams that would be used for the altar for us to come to and worship. And that is the cross. That is all is needed, is to come to him, come to him because the fact that he was on the cross. And that's the only ultimate uh, altar, God's ultimate altar that would ultimately be for, for, uh, for the world. Now, there's a distinction between a burnt offerings and peace offerings that we see here. And because we see the fact that 
uh, a mere mention of them at the outset of the giving of the law indicates that man cannot keep the law and must sacrifice uh, to deal with his inability to keep the law. And so God makes a way for them to, through the sacrifice and atonement to bring blessing upon his people. Now God wants us in worship of how God sees us. Now, Jesus made it very clear, and we've said this many times in John chapter 4, verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So God wants worship that is characterized by spirit, not by the flesh. When you start bringing flesh in, you're not worshiping in spirit. You're worshiping in the flesh. And it needs to worship in truth, which means there cannot be any deception or worship based on feeling. It's got to be on the spirit and truth, not based on flesh and feelings. That is the most important thing we must take away that God is saying to the people. As you come to worship me, worship me in spirit and in truth. And how important it is. And at the very end there in verse 26, it has this weird little moment here uh, about uh, when you build the altar and there will be steps. Because when they built it, they built them so they could rise up so that the people from afar could see. And that's why you build an altar. But in that time, he says and he warns them, be careful as you build the steps of my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. So they built it high enough, so you obviously are looking up underneath the clothing. And later on, we will see in Leviticus and Ezekiel uh, that the, as they built these altars, the priests were instructed to wear linen undershorts so that uh, people will not be able to see their nakedness as they go up the steps. So we won't build an altar that big, that's for sure. So, chapter 21, verse 1. Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. And we will see these judgments, these laws plus. It's going to talk about employment. It's going to talk about how you deal with people and murder and slander, uh, uh, manslaughter and, and violent assault and theft and resp you know, restitution. We're going to see all of this through here. So hold on. We won't uh, go down through the litany of those because we're going to catch them as we read through here. In verse 2, if you buy a Hebrew servant... He shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. And if he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife, and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. So the very first one is how to deal with or work with the Hebrew Servants, the Hebrew slaves, or those who are indebted to serve and work for someone because they owe someone in regards to uh, a, a, some kind of a payback. There's different reasons why they found themselves in this position of, of a servant. But the most important thing that we need to look at here is in the entire ancient world, people were working for other people in a principle of servitude. They were slaves in some sense, but though not necessarily from a sense that we think of. When we think of slavery, we think of brutality, we think of degradedness and all that. But that's not the case in these cases. 
Because God sits and puts some boundaries on how you are to, to treat your employees or treat your, treat your servants, those who are in servitude, uh, for some reason to, the, um, to that person. Now we see here that they could have this extreme poverty within uh, in their life and they are bound to put themselves in a position we see in Leviticus where they come and say, I'm willing to, I'm so poor, I'm, I barely can't eat, I will serve you, I will be your slave, I will be here to take care of you if you'll take care of me. That's one way. Another way we will see here and later on here in verse 7 where a father takes his daughter and is a servant into a home with the intention she would eventually marry into that family so that the family could take care of his daughter. We also will see places where the people go bankrupt. They are tried working hard and they went bankrupt and a man might find themselves being a servant to the creditors who actually owns all of the debt that kept him going for so long and now he has to pay back his debt. He didn't get to go to a bank and ask for a loan. He had to work it off with the person who he was uh, to his creditor. Or he was a thief and he got caught and he had to pay it back. He paid it back in, in a, a sign of servitude. He had to be a dedicated uh, uh, person to that person he stole from. But understand that it was not for a lifetime. Notice right there in verse 2, this person was only to serve for six years and then to let them go. So it wasn't a lifetime servitude here. But we take a look at this and you'll see some of the dynamics here where if, they, you know, if, if someone comes in and, uh, and is by himself and he serves six years when he leaves, he leaves. He's free to go. If he comes in and he comes in and he gets and he's married when he comes in, when he leaves, his wife gets to go with them. But if he goes in single, then they get married in that as in that during those six years. And even if they have children, when the man is free, he doesn't get to go with his wife and children. He has to go if he wants to leave. He could leave, but the wife and the children must stay with the owner. Until she has completely served her six years, she would not be able to go. And so there's some guidelines there because it was the master who gave him that wife and gave it. They ended up having children underneath that household, and he ends up being able to do that. Verse 6, or 5 and 6, now we see the bondservant or bond slave or a willing slave for life. And notice here, but if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free... Then his master shall bring him to the judges, and he shall also bring him to the door, or the door posts. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. So now you're sitting there, and you got a guy who comes in. He's now He was married while he was during that six years. He has children. He's Now he's met his six years. He could leave free, but he says, no, 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 no. My, my boss, my, my owner has been extremely loved. I love this man. I love working for him. I love my wife. I love my children. I am not leaving for free. I am willing to be a bondservant or a servitude to this owner for the rest of my life because he's such a good owner or a good uh, employer. So we see when that happens, then the owner takes that, that servant, takes it in front of the judges so that they can see with witnesses that this is what this man is making a decision, and they put a, a big old wooden peg right through that ear and make it very clear whatever ear they put it in and says, this person is making a decision to be a bondservant. 
someone to serve this person the rest of their life. Now, that's going to be a public recognition, a ceremony. It's, it's a willing slave. It's someone who is obligated and out of love. Out of love, he wants to serve his master. Now, it's interesting. Jesus gave us the right to be called friends instead of servants, John 15, 15. But the writers in the New Testament found plenty of glory in simply being considered what? A bondservant. We see those writers in Paul and Jude and Peter. and We say, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? I am a willing servant. I'm a willing slave. I'm a willing, uh, uh, I've completely dedicated my life out of love for my Lord and my Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm going to serve him. I'm a bondservant to whatever he wants me to do for the rest of my life. It's a decision that you must make out of love for the one you want to serve. And the question is, have you made that commitment to be a bondservant to Jesus Christ the rest of your life? Or are you just saying, I'm just going to do this little gig for a little while until I get what I get out of this, this relationship so I can get out of trouble, get out of jail free, get out of hell, get out of hell free, and I got my little ticket and my passport and all these other things. And then once everything's fine, I got my life in order, then I'm just going to back away and I'll just do my own thing. That's not a bondservant. <laughs> That's someone who served for six years, made sure everything got in, and then you're like, oh, I'm free. I get to go do whatever I want to do. Choose to be a bondservant. Pagans had a custom of branding the slaves with a name or a sign of the owner on them. Paul says this in Galatians 6.17. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. He says, I'm marked for Christ. I am a bondservant for Christ for the rest of my life, and I am excited for that. Now, verse 7, we see now the rights of female servants. If a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. And if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the customs of daughters. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, her marriage rights. And if he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. So here we are. A father says, okay, daughter, we think this is all going to work. You're going to go into this family. You're going to marry within this family. And this guy is going to, be, you're going to take you on your wife. But all of a sudden, that man says, ah, you don't please me. I don't want you to be my wife. And, you're, and so he can't just kick her out or send her on her way because now she's no longer a virgin. She's no longer someone. She's now very difficult to marry from this point on. So there's a consequence here. And if there's rules, God's putting in boundaries here that you're going to have to take care of her. You're going to have to, to let her be redeemed back to her dad and be able to pay back to her dad to, for him to take him back. You just can't sell her off to some other foreign person or whoever else wants her. And if your son in the family doesn't want her uh, as that or, or in this case 
does take or betroths to his son, then what happens is now she's treated not like a wife, but as a daughter to that, the, the, the man of, of the household. And on all the rights along with it, all the comforts of the home, all of the benefits, he, he can't sit there and say, you're not my wife, you're, my, you're not the sons, or you're going to be, I'm going to take your food away, I'm going to take this away, and, the, and marriage rights and all these things away because I have another wife. God says, no, 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 you're going to treat female servants appropriately and you're going to treat them in a way. And if you don't do these three things, then she can be granted freedom and she will not have to pay back any money or anything to you. She'll be freely be able to leave. And again, that's a protection upon the women of that day uh, in Jesus or in, uh, in, this, uh, in this period of time. And we see that that freedom for women and, and, the, and the, the, the blessing and the protection and guidance for God has placed on women all the way through the scriptures. Then we see in verse uh, 12 and 14, we see a law regarding violence and disability here. And he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. For if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So the very principle of capital punishment is established right here uh, and goes back to all the way back to Genesis chapter 9 verse 6 when we first saw that. So whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. So God established capital punishment right from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 9. He reemphasizes and, 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 and adds clarity of this so that those who were judging the people there in the in the desert had clarity so not all the time did they have to come to Moses could you imagine you're sitting there and you're sitting there okay you're going to be a judge you as an elder you're going to go out and you're going to take care of the tens the fifties the hundreds the thousands and and only could bring up some really serious things to me well you can see Moses what about this Moses what about this Moses what about this I had this one today well how do I deal, deal with this so God had to bring clarity through these laws plus so that they weren't constantly coming and it was clear how they could judge rightly with the people as they were coming here. And one of those keys is, is capital punishment. And God told the judges of Israel to look for evidence of premeditation and treachery in the hearts of the person who killed the other person. See, because God didn't place accidents or crimes of passion or neglect on the same plane as of crimes of premeditation or betrayal or treachery. The principle of punishing murders is so important to God that he denied murders, as we see here in the scripture, refuge at his altar. So if some murderer killed someone, lots of times they would run to the church. <laughs> they will run to the altar and they'll say, Protect me, help me, forgive me, help me. Can you take and make sure this gall goes away and can you help me out of this situation at hand? And God said, no, you come get him and get him out of the altar here because he killed someone. It was premeditated. It was treachery, it's betrayal. And that you can't just run to the altar, God says here, and to find, uh, you know, that you can save your life. Because the, just looking at the, the universal custom in the ancient world, a religious altar was a place of sanctuary against justice or vengeance. See, here's what happens. Is 
that God was starting to put some guidelines because he understood human nature is we always want to have vengeance. We always want to, you, as we continue and we see this, we, if someone does something, there's a natural fleshly response is I'm going to hit you ten times harder. It's a fleshly response. It's not a godly response. And so here, people will kind of look at this and yet, you know, God told the judges here in Israel that, you know, there was to be no mercy in sentencing of those guilty of the most worst murders, those first degree murders. You should take them from my altar and they should die. That's what God says here. There should not be, there's no restitution here. And there's no, let's put them through and get them a master's degree and put them in jail for, you know, you know, 20, 30, a life sentence, but gets out after five. I mean, these are not how things worked back then. And that's why there was, God's law is perfect in regards to uh, bringing guidance of how to deal with these kinds of things. Because God said it very clearly in uh, Numbers 35 that murderers unpunished defile the land. Did you know that? Murderers unpunished based on how God says they should be, un- be punished is def- will defile the land. It's, it's that serious. And so we see here now in verse 15 through 17 laws concerning murder of a parent. And he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He who kidnaps a man and sells him or if he is found in his hand shall surely be put to death. And he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Well, that would change radically the population of today, wouldn't it? If the children were taken (laughs) to die because they cursed their father and their mother, we would have a very much smaller population today, now wouldn't we? Or maybe because of the boundaries that God placed on here, that children would think wisely and not curse their mother and father because they know the consequences are great. And it could be kept boundaries on them. But we see here at this point in time, God made it very clear what was to happen here. Because in the very beginning, he says, if someone, if a kid, someone strikes the parent, he should surely die. A child who murdered was to receive capital punishment, period. They weren't sitting there, oh, they're a child, they don't know any better. No, God sees them as a child and knows better. And that's how God sees it. And he who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. So kidnapping was considered a capital offense as well. In the eyes of God, criminality, enslaving a man through kidnap, was not far from murdering him. And that's how God sees it. You kidnap a man, you take him based on things. You've, you step the bounds. That's just like murder. And anyone who curses your mo- father and mother, same thing. You're threatening your parents. You're starting with the mind. And it's only a matter of time. If you threaten your parents, it's only a matter of time it will, you will find an opportunity to kill your parents. And that can't happen. 
we're going to nip it in the bud beforehand because it starts with your mind. And if it, that doesn't change, then that will lead to the death of your parents. And again, why did God send these boundaries? Because for the sake of society, <laughs> for the sake of civilized society, there must be respect between generations. Uh, kids cannot disrespect the next generation of their parents or their grandparents. Because when you see what happened is God knows the heart of, of the flesh of a person who's unsaved and not following God. They will look to see they're more important than the next generation or the generation after that. That's why you see euthanasia going on here in many places. Because that will be used ultimately by the younger to try to get rid of the older if they were going against and pushing back on the ways of the younger. There's always rebellion in a rebellious heart. And so God says there's got to be boundaries here and in the generation it must respect the older generation and must take care of the generation and, it's, and God lines that out even more later on in the scriptures. And it's a reflection of the fifth commandment. We must, for the sake of society and for family, we must respect each generation and their roles and responsibility. We also see in verses 18 and 19 regarding the compensation for personal injury. If man contend with each other, they, start, they decide they want to fight. They contend with each other. One strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and he does not die, but is confined to his bed. Ooh, that's a, quite the hit. If he rises again and walks out, about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. He'll be let go. He won't be found guilty here. He shall only pay for the loss of his time. Meaning he couldn't work, you're going to pay for everything he couldn't work. And shall provide for him to, he, to be thoroughly healed. That means you don't sit there and say, well, you know, you can walk with the staff. I know you can't work and do what you were doing. I'll give you, you know, maybe a few meals. Or, you know, I'll give you a little bit of money. No, you're going to take care of this man and his family all the way through until he's healed to before he can go back to work. So why is this put in place so clearly? Because you know there's a consequence for your uncontrolled behavior. If you sit there and you have an anger problem and you think you can go deal with it and get that aggression out and to see who's more dominant because I'm going to fight you and I'm going to hit you with a fist or I'm going to take a bat after you or a stone in this case, there's going to be consequence that you will not only sit there and go, well, I'm sorry, you know, he'll get better. No, you're going to take care of this man and provide for this man. You're going to pay for this man to go back. Until he's healed. Now we use a lot of times today, on, in many cases, not probably wisely, many people then turn around and use the lawsuits to try to get that to happen. But in this case, they had to personally provide and take care of this man who might be confined to his bed or is not able to go back completely to work. But they couldn't just pay. They just couldn't pay for his medical recovery. He had to take care of them and pay for it as well. Verse 20 and 21, we see some law around beating and the death of a servant. And if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he, for he is his property." So in ancient Israel's servants 
could be murdered. In many cultures, the master would be held blameless for the murder of that servant. But in this case, in here in Israel, they would be held responsible and could be punished for, for beating and going overboard and beating the male or female servant out of whatever anger, out of controlled anger, whatever it caused, uh, you know, what probably was not their intent to kill them because they want them to serve them. So they're not looking to have them killed. But they went overboard, obviously, uh, clearly, and there were some boundaries there that they could be held responsible for hurting their, their, their servants. But that this principle is so important to catch because a servant was a person that was there to, that seen as property to the master until their obligation was fulfilled, remember, in six years, and they were able to be for free, or to, to be set for free. And if, when you take this from a spiritual perspective, we are the property of whom we serve. Just like this slave to this master was a slave to the master, the servant to this master who they served. And whoever you serve is the master. So from a spiritual perspective, you have to catch this and understand that if you serve sin, if you are in sin and you want sin, then you are the master of your life is Satan. If you want to be obedient and you want to repent and you want to walk away from sin and you don't want that sin in your life, then you are what? Jesus Christ is your, your master. He's your Lord. So you, who, who's, who's your master? Who's your Lord? Depends on if you're obedient and want to walk away and stay away from sin or you practice and you go and towards sin and you love sin. You love darkness or you love light will determine who's your master. It's a very simple thing to look and ponder on. I assure you, the Holy Spirit will reveal that to you clearly. Verses 22 and through 25, the laws of retribution here. If, a man, if men fight and hurt a woman with child, so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished according as the woman's husband imposes on him. So if you're sitting there and you're fighting and a woman who's pregnant is in, gets caught up in this whole mess and she goes into preterm labor, guess what? If she's, everything's fine and no thing happens and no, no harm takes place, then the husband of that woman is going to be able to punish the guys who caused it to happen. And he shall pay as the judges determine. So he gets to bring them in front of the judges. He gets to present and say, hey, and the judges work this all out and say, what is going to be their punishment? And this husband gets to bring them in front of the judge to make that happen. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. What does that mean? There's limited retribution. The, whatever they did, if he hurt an eye, then all you can go up to in regards to punishment for that person that did that is their eye. If, if they hit, uh, took out uh, a tooth, then the farthest you can get retribution, you cannot have vengeance beyond a taking of his tooth. 
Do you see that? Because the nature is to sit there and go, you just stole from me $100. You go into the judge today and somehow, someway, you don't get to judge and you have to pay back $100. Somehow the judge in these laws today say, you owe this person a million dollars now. It's way beyond what the person actually did to someone. Because the laws are not, not right like God's laws. So an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You can sit there, well, I know I lost my eye, but you know how important eyes are. Can you just take my little toe? No, it's got to be up to that equal to eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand. Those kinds of things. Because they need to understand the consequences of what you do to someone else. You also will receive. And no more. There is limited retribution that someone can do upon another person. And that is important to understand and follow and keep in perspective even today. Verse 26 and 27 is the law of retribution regarding masters and servants. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. So now God is even putting more boundaries on the masters or on the owners here when it comes to how they treat their servants or their employees. If you think you're in control because you pay and you provide for these people and you think you can do whatever you want to do to these people who work for you, absolutely not. And if you sit there and get so angry where you pop your servant in the eye and he loses his eye, they're able to be set free. Now, why did God put this in order? Because it puts the boundaries on the owners to say, you get out of control and you hurt your servants, you lose them completely. You take out an eye, you take out a tooth, they get to go free. Do you know any master, any owner that's going to allow you, him out of, out of uh, response and taking on an eye or tooth would lose a servanthood of six years or whatever the years left that they had? No, of course not. So that's why God puts in boundaries here. Verse 20, uh, chapter 21, verse 28 through 32. Now we see laws regarding animal control and damage here. We're going to talk shift from humans to now animals, and there's some guidelines that God's wanted to put on here. And it says, if an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, because no one's going to profit from this thing. The animal just has to, has to die because it, it, it hurts someone. But the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. So the owner won't be held responsible, animal will die. But no one gets to profit from this, meaning you can't take that, that ox now and, and cook it up and have a barbecue and share it and, and have an opportunity. No, no. you got to get rid of it all completely. No one benefits from this. But if the ox tended to thrust with his, its horn in times past, oh, the animal has a history of being very aggressive. What happens? And it has been made known to its owner. And the owner knows that that animal is aggressive. And he has not kept it confined. He's been letting it go freely. That's not a good sign. So that it has, a, has killed a man or a woman. The ox shall be stoned. And its owner also shall be put to death. Why? Because the owner knew that it was an aggressive animal and he did not control it and confine it and that went out and killed someone, you're held liable, you're, you're going to die and along with that animal. 
If there is imposed on him a sum of money, then he shall pay to redeem his life whatever is imposed on him, whether it has gored a son or a gored a daughter, according to this judge, it shall be done to him. If the ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. So there's going to be a point here where it seems that if the survivors of the dead man accepts a monetary restitution in lieu of the owner's life, so they would not be, it can be acceptable and settled there. This guy should die, then there's this working out, if I'll give me some monetary, some money to help compensate for the fact that we lost this person, that way you don't have to, you need to die. And so there's some, some, some boundaries and some things there that can be set in place. But if a servant was killed under these kind of circumstances, the price of the restitution for a servant was what? 30 shekels of silver. Does that ring a bell for anybody? Jesus was sold when Judas betrayed Jesus for how many? 30 pieces of silver that we see in Matthew chapter 26. So we see here that there is some restitution in, in dealing with how to deal with animals. And you can imagine in 2.5 million people and all the animals, there was probably some circumstances and issues going on with animals dwelling among the people around the people that they had to always judge based on. Verse 33 and 36 is regarding the principle of negligence and restitution on negligence. And it says, if a man opens a pit, digs open a pit, or if a man digs a pit and, and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls in it, the owner of the pit shall make it good. He shall give money to their owner, but the dead animal shall be his. If one, man's, uh, if one man's ox hurts another so that it dies, then they sh shall sell the live ox and divide the money from it, and the dead ox they shall also divide. Or if it was known that the ox intended to thrust in the pa in time past, and his owner has kept, not kept it confined, he shall surely pay ox for ox, and the dead animal shall be his own. So, again... The principle here is really simple. The principle of responsibility. Personal responsibility to the things that you own and what you do and how you manage that. You have this principle of responsibility. You can't sit there and say, it's an animal. It's just an animal. I mean, how can't ruin a, can't manage an animal? No, you do. It's your animal. You're supposed to manage that animals and keep them confined, keep them within the fence line. You know as an owner that this is an aggressive animal. You don't let the bull run free. I mean, this is insane. But take responsibility for what God has given you and make sure you understand there's consequences if you don't manage it well. In regards to that, even if it's an ox hurting an ox. Oh, animals do these things. Well, yes, but you have to also understand you're going to have to pay that person who lost the ox because this is their livelihood. These animals were their livelihood. This takes care of family upon family. So this is important things you have to take responsibility for. Now we go into chapter 22. And we see here restitution regarding the cases of theft here around personal responsibility, uh, personal property. So if a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters or it slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five 
oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. If the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed and he shall make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for the, his theft. And if the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it is an ox or a donkey or sheep, he shall restore double. So dealing with someone who has a problem with theft, uh, stealing and theft, the command against theft was already stated back in 10 commandments. If you remember in, in chapter 20, verse 15, here more specific principles given to judges and how to rightly um, judge the situations when it comes to someone who is uh, 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 this daily life and, and how to minister justly among the people of Israel with all these kinds of people stealing from people within the camp. Um, the Mosaic law did not send a person to jail because of theft. We don't see that in the Mosaic law. Instead, that thief was required to restore what he saw, and he had to do that through what? Work. He had to work to get that to be repaid for them. He didn't just get to go in the jail and be provided for and sit there for a while. He had to work hard to make sure that is restored. If the person was unable to pay back what he stole, then of course that indentured, indentured labor, someone who would have to work and work and work until uh, he was able to restore uh, the full value. But we also see here, if a thief is found breaking in, we see also God says that the owner that he's breaking into, the owner of that house or that place, has the right to defend and protect his property with force but only with reasonable force. The assumption was that if it was daylight, the property owner had the ability to defend himself short of lethal force. But at nighttime, if he couldn't see and other things, there was able to have that ability to even to go whatever it took to make sure he protected him and his family and he would not be held responsible. Verses 5 and 8, it's a principle of restitution here as well. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. Hey, you, hey my animals look pretty bad, but man, their, their grass looks a lot better. Their corn looks a lot better. Why don't we just open up the back gate and let them over there and eat for a while, and then we'll bring them back over. And wouldn't that be uh, good neighbors will do that, right? No. If you do that, you're going to give your best vineyards and your best fields of feed to the person you just stole from. Uh, if fire breaks out and catches in thorns, somehow a fire breaks out and you caused it, and it catches in thorns so that the uh, stacked grains and the standing grain or the field is consumed. He who kindled the fire shall surely make restitution. If a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep, it is stolen out of a man's house. If the thief is found, he sh shall pay double. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges to see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. So even if a fire breaks out, you are not handling fire properly and it causes it to affect someone else, you're going to pay double. You're going you're gonna to have to, I should say, you know, have that appropriate restitution in regards to replacing what it is. But if a man delivers 
to his neighbor money and or articles to keep. Hey, I'm going to go out of town. Can you watch these important things? They're very they're household heirlooms. This is really important stuff and money. Could you protect this? And it's found that <laughs> it was stolen out of the man's house that you said to protect it, but he didn't protect it well enough. It got stolen. Then the thief is found. He shall pay double. But if they can't find the thief, but the stuff is gone, I don't know what happened. I was here. I'm not sure what happened. Your heirloom and all that has just disappeared. Then they are to bring in front of the judges to see whether or not the neighbor who is actually the one that took the stuff and the judges will be rightly judged in regards to that situation. Verse 9 through 13 is the principle of restitution as well. For any kind of trespasses, whether it concerns an ox, a donkey, a sheep, or clothing, or any kind of lost thing which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, and whomever the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man delivers to his neighbor a donkey and an ox and a sheep or any animal to keep and it dies is hurt or driven away, no one seeing it, then an oath of the Lord shall be between them both, that he has not put his hand into his neighbor's goods. I didn't steal it. I didn't reach in and grab this stuff. It just got away. I don't know how that happened. It just got away. So that's the situation right here at hand. And the owner of it shall accept that 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 agreement, that that the oath in front of the Lord. I front of God and his witness, I did not take your stuff. One of those moments. The other guy has to say, okay, you say, Lord knows I did not take your stuff. I'm going to accept that, even though I don't know what happened to my stuff here. And the, Lord, the owner of it shall accept it, right? And he shall not make it good. But if, in fact, it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to the owner of it, if it is torn to pieces by a beast, then he shall bring it as evidence, and he shall not make good what was torn. And he shall not make good what is torn. So here's a, probably the best example. You're an owner. You have shepherds. Shepherds taking care of your sheep. The sheep and the shepherds are out there. Owner's not out in the field. All of a sudden, the owner says, hey, I had 100 sheep here. I don't have 100 sheep anymore. What happened to the one sheep? What, what, what's going on here? Did you take my sheep? No, I didn't take the sheep. I don't know what happened to the sheep. He'll be held responsible, that shepherd will be. Even though, if, unless he says, Lord, I know, Lord knows, I don't know what happened to the sheep, then there's not much it can do. But that's why the shepherds always went after the what? The one sheep. Because if he could bring to the owner the leftovers, he could show the, to the owner, I went out and tried to keep it from the wolf. And I was able to beat the wolf off and get the remains and bring it back to show you a wolf got this. I did not steal it. And I'm not benefiting and creating my own little farm over here on the right, <laughs> a few fields down. I'm not creating my own little field here. My own little, my own, my little farm. So that, that's how that was to work out in front of all of these uh, situations that you know for a fact would be uh, found. Because this is a man is innocent until proven guilty. And that is a principle here that is established for them to know. Now, I, 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 I want to emphasize one point here, and I don't want to hold on to this because we have a few bunch of more uh, verses to go here but um, the owner 
of this, the situation of that lost animal shall accept it uh, is important to, of a principle I want to emphasize here in, uh, that runs parallel in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1-8 through 8 in the New Testament, that believers should avoid taking legal disputes among themselves to secular judges. They should allow the matter to be judged by the church, if you know the scriptures. If there's a dispute and it cannot be resolved and you can't bring someone in to help, it needs to come in front of the church so the church can help judge that rightly before it goes into the secular world of, uh, of, uh, of judges. And then you face the consequences of the law of the lands, which are not always in, uh, in line with God's uh, scripture. In verse 14 and 15, we see the uh, pl principles applied to borrowing and lending. If a man borrows uh, the, uh, the lawnmower and anything from his neighbor, no kidding. Uh, if any man borrows anything from his neighbor and it becomes injured or dies, the owner of it not being with it, he shall surely make it good. If its owner was with it, he shall not make it, he shall not make it good if it was hired it came for its hire. So here you are. You would think, okay, can I borrow your lawnmower because I need to cut the grass? Sure. You got the lawnmower. Go, go, go cut the grass. And the owner's not there. It's the neighbor's using it and everything's fine. If something happens to it, then, you know, the neighbor's going to have to work it out. Okay, I, it, it broke. It just, he should make it good. If for some reason you get the lawnmower and you go over to the lawnmower and you're there as an owner with them helping mow the lawn and take care of it and it breaks down, then the, the neighbor is not going to have to make it good because you were with the lawnmower, you were taking care of it. Well, you, same thing here. You don't have lawnmowers in those days, but you might have, hey, you want the sheep to clear off your grass? I'll bring the sheep over. They'll eat the grass up there, and I'm not with them, and something happens to sheep, you're going to make it right to me. But if I'm over there with the sheep, with you, watching them eat the grass while we have a good cup of coffee and something happens to sheep, then you wouldn't have to make it right. That's kind of how it plays out. Verse 14, 15, um, we just did that. So let's go down to 16 and 17. This is the remedy around premarital sex. We can stop here now and we'll take it for next week. No, let me let's see if we can finish up. If a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. So here we have a man who entices, he coerces, he comes in and convinces this girl to have casual sex, to come in and have premarital sex because he really likes her. Both Old and New Testament states that sexual relationships carrying lasting consequences we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. There's no such thing as casual sex. There's sex within the marriage or there's no sex outside of marriage. So we have to understand that there's no allowance here, even though it is strongly discouraged here. Because now if this man, if you notice the scripture here, if this man chooses to lie with this young virgin, he is saying, I am going to marry her or I am going to have to surely pay the bride price for her. Now, he says, I go, yeah, I want to marry her because I really like her. But the father of that daughter says, absolutely not. You're a loser. I don't like the fact you took her like this. Not going to happen. That guy is going to have to pay, uh, pay that uh, father anyway. 
in regards to that situation, and he will not be able to have that girl again. Verse 18 through 20 is three capital crimes here is noted. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. And he who sacrifices to any god except the Lord only, he shall utterly be destroyed. So we see three capital punishments here. If anyone is playing with sorcery, and that is two types of sorcery, and we see in the scriptures a contact where you are looking to try to get in contact with the dark and demonic forces uh, of powers of, of a person or a thing. You're trying to, to bring that into your life. That is no gouda, no touchy, not to happen. Second, is sorcery is also referred to as drugs or potions and those kinds of things where this occultist-like or drug-taking and seduced kind of religiosity is absolutely forbidden, forbidden then and forbidden now and should not be touched. Absolutely not. And you can see there's a capital punishment when you try to bring the demonic forces in or you start taking drugs and you're starting to do potions that are causing uh, this, this, this enhancement that you're looking to have. It is, 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 is not good in God's eyes at all. And so these occultic practices and drug-induced altered states that are trying to be fabricated and coming into the culture and, and causing it just absolutely the fabric of the society to dissipate. Now also in New Testament, witchcraft is equally condemned. But in spite of history, nowhere in the scriptures I can find, nowhere in history shows that this, even these that witches who practice that kind of thing, even in the Middle East, in the Middle Ages, they would put them to death. But nowhere in the New Testament that mediums or witches should be put to death. I don't see that in the scripture. So again, we are looking to pray for people who are caught up in those kinds of darkness to share the gospel and encourage them that they can be set free from that and can walk away from that if they would just give their life over to God. God will forgive them and restore them and bring them into the, uh, God's family. They would not have to seek after darkness and those kinds of things. But we have to be careful, not only the sorcery, but he also talks about bestiality here. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely put to death. Because if you get to the point where you're in bestiality and you're practicing these things like the ancient world used to practice, you've gone down this path of, of depravity in your mind that is pretty far. Because it didn't just start with having sex with an animal. That more than likely started with adultery or pedophilia or polygamy or prostitution or homosexuality or gender confusion. All these kinds of things can cause a rippling effect where the mind can just go and increase to be deprived to a point where you just lost all objectivity in regards I, it feels good and I'm just going with it when you get to that point where it feels good I'm just going to do it and that mentality and it comes out of your mouth be very careful that is a very unstable man or woman who makes those kinds of statements very unstable and God says here anyone who sleeps with an animal surely die and then the sacrifice to any other god except the Lord. Again, you start bringing in pagan gods and you start coming in and eroding uh, the, the fabric and the society of God's people. And, and it's creeping into the church or creeping into the, the camp here. God said, absolutely not in regards to that. Verse 21, you shall neither treat a stranger nor oppress him. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And God says, uh, you need to be... Your moral character 
character as God's child really should look to help those who are strangers, those who are in need. We are not to exclude. We're supposed to not just find ourselves in a bubble and only associate with just Christians or just Jews. If there's a stranger, God wants us to be a witness and a light and to actually help a stranger and not to mistreat a stranger and not to look down at a stranger. We should be outreaching and outlooking to help and bless others who are in need and they need to know who God is. Because they were strangers in Egypt. Remember, they were, they were not in Egypt. They were strangers. They were not, they're not from there. And again, they, were, they asked for permission to be able to dwell there. And Pharaoh gave them permission, as we saw in Genesis 47. They gave them permission to be able to dwell there. And then we see Israel uh, was moving over into Canaan and was not welcomed at all going into Canaan at all. But remember, governments have the right and responsibility to control borders and immigration. Yet there is no doubt of individuals' responsibility to neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress them. So there is a responsibility. There are boundaries when it comes to strangers. But at the same time, as God leads to help a stranger in need and and permission to help and and bring, it's important that we do so. Because we also know in the scriptures that a stranger, you could actually be entertaining who? An angel. And we learned that, didn't we, at the youth group on Saturday night when we studied about angels. Verse 22 through 24 is a compassion for the weak and vulnerable. And from based on that and time-wise, I think I'm going to end right there and we'll be picking back up next week because we're going to be catching the last couple of chapters and we'll do that since we're a few minutes over.